There's a hodgepodge of things in this booklet, and I might skip around in a non-sequential order. There's a hodgepodge of things in this booklet that I want to share with you that, uh, that, that I'm thinking about as I approach um, Yom Kippur uh, this year. Um, so we, be- we begin with um, a really, really fam- famous debate between Maimonides and Nathmonides about um, the rationale for animal sacrifice, why it was that we were commanded to sacrifice animals. Um, just as an aside, before we jump into to the Maimonidean text, I didn't bring the Hebrew because it was written in Arabic originally, so I couldn't bother, I just put the English down. Um, just an aside, he, you could read the Guide to the Perplexed in certain places, you could read it as hinting towards the idea that when the Messiah comes, we won't reinstitute animal sacrifice. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, the source we're about to see makes it look like animal sacrifice was some sort of compromise with a, with a primitive age. But also he makes it look like the, the evolution from animal sacrifice to prayer was a real evolution, progress, that prayer is a more sophisticated way of worshipping God. He also makes it seem, in more than one place, as if uh, silent meditation would be, uh, a, would be progress above even verbal prayer, because uh, we languish under an, uh, under an illusion that words are a sufficient medium for uh, describing the things we want to describe in our theology, um, and that silent meditation would really be the, the, uh, the most refined type of service. So if you read only those excerpts, you imagine, well, when the side comes, we're not going to go back to this primeval kind of ancient uh, uh, primitive animal sacrifice. However, there are two pieces of important evidence that conflict with this. The first is that Maimonides argues in the, in the Guide to the Perplexed that even if, even if a law that God legislates was initially motivated by some sort of accommodation to a given age. We can't change it. We can never change it. It has to be eternal. Because if it's, if it's less than eternal, it will look to the masses as if it wasn't true somehow. Right? Um, they won't be able to understand. Right? The Maimonides has this elitist um, strain in his thought, so we have to worry what the masses will think. Um, and the other thing is, he goes, he goes to great lengths, like no other codifier of Jewish law, as far as I'm aware, all the way up to the Arach HaShulchan. Um, he went to great lengths to codify the laws of sacrifices. The Rith didn't do that, his, his father's teacher. He only codified, it, codified laws that were still, in some way or other, applicable. Um, the Shulchan Aruch doesn't have a section on animal sacrifice because, again, it's not at all applicable. But Maimonides went out of his way to codify to great length in the Mishnah Torah the details of the laws of sacrifice. And it's a little bit unbelievable to think he'd have spilt that ink unless he thought this would one day be practi- practical again. Right? Um, so I would, guard, I, would, I, would, I would advise people to, be, to guard themselves against like, jumping to the conclusion that just because what we're about to read, my Maimonides thought we'll never sacrifice animals again. I think that's, and that would be uh, an overreach. Okay, so let's have a look. The first source in our handout. Uh, the Israelites were commanded to devote themselves to God's service. Right? Um, 
You shall serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and you shall serve the Lord your God, you shall serve him. This is the notion of avodah, service. But the custom which was in those days general among all men, and I imagine women, and the general mode of worship in which the Israelites were brought up, consisted in sacrificing animals in those temples which contained certain images, to bow down to those images and to burn incense before them. Religious and aesthetic persons were in those days the persons that were devoted to the service in the temples erected to the stars, as, be, as has been explained by us. It was in accordance with the wisdom and plan of God as displayed in the whole of creation that he did not command us to give up and to discontinue all these manners of service. For, for to obey such a commandment it would have been contrary to the nature of man, who generally cleaves to that to which he is used it would in those days have made the same impression as a prophet would make at present if he called us to the service of God and told us in his name that we should not pray to him, not fast, not seek his help in time of trouble, that we should serve him in thought and not by any action. If a prophet came down today and said, oh, there's this amazing God guy, but just don't serve him, don't pray to him, don't weep, in, in, in religious ecstasy, and he's just not interested in any of that. Well, that will not catch on, right? And there's a reason it won't catch on, because there's such a thing as the religious psyche of, 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 of humanity. Now, it's culturally specific, the sorts of kind of gestures, religious gestures, that we feel compelled to make are, are culturally specific. We no longer feel compelled to slaughter sheep, right? Oh, I must slaughter a sheep. I'm feeling very, you know, religiously devoted today. I must slaughter a sheep. No, we don't feel like that. But we do feel like we need to be devoted in other ways. And says Maimonides, if the prophet came down and said, you know, God doesn't need your sacrifices, it would have been as, as strange then as a prophet today who says that God doesn't want us to pray. And it wouldn't have caught on at all. Um, for this reason, God allowed these kinds of service to continue. He transferred to his service that which had formerly served as a worship of created beings. So instead of worshipping idols with sacrifice, we worship God with them. And instead of worshipping things imaginarily unreal, he commanded us to serve him in the same manner, viz. to build unto him a temple, etc., etc. Um, So, so look, at the, uh, the very bottom paragraph we see of the page, we see this material in the Rambam that may lead you to, to falsely conclude that he thinks we should discontinue the service altogether. I now return to my theme. As the sacrificial service is not the primary object of the commandment of our sacrifice, while supplications, prayers and similar kinds of worship are nearer to the primary object. Because what was the verses that we began this chapter with? Serve him with all of your heart. That's what God's really interested in. God isn't interested in slaughtering animals. He's really interested in a certain type of intentional act. Um, okay. So the next Rambam, uh, we, can, we can move on to the next source on the handout, um, is he, he goes to some length to explain... Um, why it was that we um, sacrificed the animals that we sacrificed. And Maimonides says, the Egyptians worshipped Ares, and therefore they abstained from killing sheep. 
And they also held shepherds in contempt because shepherds were um, uh, subjugating a godlike creature. So the shepherds are, are to be held in contempt. Behold, we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians, it says. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians, it says in the book of Genesis. So, but, so we kind of offend the Egyptians by slaughtering their god. Uh, so this is like very culturally uh, insensitive. Some sects among the Sabians worship demons and imagine that these assumed the form of goats. And in fact, in the Bible, sometimes the word sitirim refers to demons, not to goats. Uh, this worship is widespread and therefore they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto demons after whom they have gone a-whoring, it says in the book of Leviticus. For this reason, those sects abstain from eating goat's flesh because you wouldn't want to eat the flesh of a god. Oh. Most idolaters, well, that's true, the Christians do. Though, yeah. <laughs> that's true. But in their cultures, in their cultures, like as he's about to say, for Hindus it's offensive to eat cow meat because it's God. You're right, it's a kind of idiosyncratic feature of Christianity that eating God's flesh becomes like uh, a form of worship. But in many cultures that would be seen as uh, a sacrilege. Um, so for this reason, uh, so, so, so therefore the people of Hodu, the Indians, the Hindus, up to this day do not slaughter cattle even in those countries where other animals are slaughtered. In order to eradicate these false principles, the Lord commands us to offer sacrifices only to three types of animals. Goats, sheep, and cows. Meaning the animals that other people refrained from harming, and we dafka. Okay. So, what we see from Maimonides is that really what God wants is our hearts. He wants us to be devoted to him. He couldn't have created a religion in the time in which Judaism was created without allowing us to sacrifice to animals. This now becomes obligatory because the law doesn't change. When Messiah comes, according to Maimonides, we'll sacrifice animals again. But also the reason God chose the particular animals he chose was um, to wean the Jewish people off of certain idolatrous tendencies that were current to worship goats, to worship cows, and to worship um, sheep. So, so now, that's, that's the Maimonidean position. And for the rest of the session today, I'm going to be adopting, if only for the sake of argument, a stridently Nachmanidean position, right? Uh, like, radically opposed to this conception of sacrifice. Um, so let's have a look what um, the Rambam has to say. This is on his, this is Nachmanides' commentary to the Torah, Leviticus 1.9. The Hine, oh, I don't have a, you need a source sheet. Yeah. Yes, um, but I didn't make any more copies. Why don't we go and, and get this one a copy? Do you mind getting that one a copy? And for the time being, can I, okay, sorry. I was told only two people registered, so I only made five copies, That's I thought. Fair. I thought that was ambitious. Okay. Um, okay. These are stupid words. The words of Maimonides. He's referring to Maimonides, right? They are they're stupid words. Um, um, they, they offer healing offhand for a great wound and considerable difficulty, and they make the table of the Lord defiled. 
As for Maimonides, uh, uh, it serves only to oppose the wicked and fools of the earth. According to Maimonides, why do we sacrifice the animals we sacrifice? Purely to oppose the stupid people. The stupid, the stupid Indians who worship cows, the stupid Egyptians who worship sheep, and the stupid uh, Sabians who worship goats. That's the whole purpose of the sacrificial order, is to oppose the stupid. That's what, um, that, that's, that's what the Ramban thinks Maimonides has done to the sacrificial order. He has, re- he's reduced it to nothing more than a, yeah. What's the great wound that he's referring to? Um, the, 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 uh, I, I suppose that the great wound is the wound of humanity that, that they are addicted to idolatry and, but that's all idol, that's all the sacrificial of, uh, uh, um, order does. It, but it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's a wound, but, but only a wound really for, for the wicked and the stupid, um, uh, according to Nachmanides. Did you say elitist Yes, that's right, Nachmanides is here also. Nachmanides is known to be less, somewhat, somewhat less elitist, although he... No, he's, he's almost calling him on mm-hmm. which is, Anyway. Which is the Hebrew word for wound? He is, that's right. Pardon? The Hebrew for wound. For wounds. So here it goes, um, uh, Sheva Gadol, like a great break, a great rupture, oh, right? Bakushya Rabba, and a massive problem. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and then he says, it, this also won't work. Given the view of the Egyptians, their, mal- their malady isn't going to be fixed in this way, but exacerbated. The evil view in question serves the star of Aries and the star of the ox, which have, a, which have power according to their philosophy. And therefore they don't eat them because of their power and their mystery. But if they're slaughtered for the sake of the honourable name of God, that might well be considered an honour for them and a distinguishing merit. And they themselves did practice this, as it is said, and they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to Seirim, the goats, and makers of the golden calf slaughtered to him. The idea is, okay, it's true. Some cultures um, privilege certain animals, worship certain animals, and they manifest this worship by not eating them. But if Judaism says, no, there's only one or two or three animals that we can sacrifice to God, that's just another way of privileging those animals. So it's not going to, because we don't sacrifice any old animal, we sacrifice just a few. So this may well go to make, you know, to exacerbate the malady rather, to, rather than to cure them of the malady. And actually, some of the cults that Maimonides quotes, such as the Sabaeans, seem to have slaughtered goats, even though they also worship them. Okay. Okay. So, so, so first problem is it's not clear that it's going to work. If Maimonides is right, then it's not going to work. Um, Maimonides recalls that they used to slaughter sacrifices to the moon at every new moon and to the sun as it rose to the constellations they were known to them in their books. It would be a better cure for their philosophical malady to eat them for pure satisfaction, which is forbidden to them and despicable in their eyes, and they never did this. If you really want to offend a Hindu, don't take the cow and make it one of the very few animals that you privilege with this honour of sacrificing to God. Rather, open McDonald's on every other street corner, not for the privileged uh, uh, sacrifice to God, but just eating for your own satisfaction. That, says Nachmanides, would would teach them that cows aren't special. But privileging them uh, um, for sacrifice on the altar of Hashem, that wouldn't be good.
consider Noah, as he left the ark with his three sons. There were no Sabaeans or Egyptians back then. And what did Noah do? What did Noah do as soon as he got off the ark? He brought sacrifices. Now you can't tell me he did that to, to cure a social malady of the Egyptians and the Sabaeans because it didn't exist yet. Good point, Nachmanides, right? And what does it say? It was good in the eyes of God. And it is said concerning this, in Genesis 8.21, that Hashem smelled the pleasing scent. And because of it, because of the scent, Hashem resolved within himself never to curse the ground again on account of man. And Abel, Hevel, also brought animal sacrifice from their flock and from their milk. And Hashem accepted Hevel and his Mincha offering. And there wasn't yet in the world the slightest hint of idolatry. So to say that, I, that, that sacrifice, A, doesn't please God inherently, and B, is only a response to idolatry, is just completely rebutted by the text. Sociologically, it wouldn't work. And textually, it's not substantiated. God seems to appreciate the sacrifices, and they were brought before there was even the slightest hint of idolatry. It's more fitting to hear the reason that is said of them, the real reason. This is the real reason. Well, let's come back to that. Okay? We'll come back to this paragraph later, the last paragraph of the Ramban. What's the real reason for sacrifice? What's the real reason? Okay what we've done so far. We've looked at why Maimonides says we sacrifice animals, and we've looked at why the Ramban says that Maimonides can't be right. Now I want to switch tack, tracks a little bit, and, and bring us closer to the territory of Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, and on the Yom Kippur in general, the Akedah Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, is this central, central motif. And the question is, what's going on in that story? Now I've had a fight with a scholar in Israel called Yeram Hazoni. I'm, I'm sorry, I forget your name. Oh, Freedom. Freedom, pardon? Freedom, Freedom, Freedom. Freedom, I think you've heard me say some of this before, a little bit of this before. Oh, it's it's Chazara. Yoram Hazoni writes in a relatively recent book called The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture about the Akedah. And he says a, certain, a, a number of things which I think simply cannot be substantiated. If they can be substantiated in the text of the Bible, they certainly can't be substantiated, in my opinion, in the rabbinic tradition. And yet there's a footnote in the book where he says he hasn't seen one rabbi who disagrees, he hasn't seen one rabbi in the rabbinic tradition who disagrees with him. I'm going to show you a booklet worth of sources. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to get the view out on the table. Does someone, does someone want to read? Well, on, on the bottom of page three. And I'll interrupt you every now and again. Who will who, who read for me? Abraham's sense of the need to protect innocent human life, even if this involves a risk to oneself, stands out as something unusual and as a virtue that God is concerned to see handed down to future generations. Okay, premise number one. For Hazoni, it's very, very important that, that Abraham's um, um, most significant character trait is concern for others, especially concern for the innocent other. And, and that's part of the reason for his election. So that's a really important point for Yom Khazani. So it can continue. Unfortunately, this crucial fact tends to be overlooked because Abraham's apparent willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac at God's command has made him seem to be an exceedingly doubtful exemplar of the concern for human Okay, 
So, so this is a key, a key premise for Yom Chazani. Abraham's election was all about his concern for human life, but this is obscured by the common understanding of the Akedah, which makes it look like he didn't have concern for the innocent life of his son. Carry on. Indeed, the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah has come to be associated with the willingness to act in horrifying, absurd, and morally repugnant ways in God's name. It is now a commonplace to hear this story called the sacrifice of Isaac and for Abraham's frame of mind to be described as his willingness to sacrifice his long-awaited son at God's command. These are tropes that fit well with Christian readings of the Bible, which see the so-called sacrifice of Isaac as foreshadowing the New Testament God's sacrifice of Jesus, understood as his only son on the cross, and with certain Christian views of faith in God as involving the acceptance of the absurd. Okay, so for your Tazani, whenever you see the word Christian, just read stupid, because he, he just thinks that Christianity is stupid, right? And for me, that's already um, troubling, right? I mean, um, any religious tradition with uh, a history as long as Christianity or Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or deserves um, careful attention and respect because um, they, they, might are, be onto they may be onto something in their traditions of people of wisdom and sincerity mm-hmm. and you know, you know and, and we should we should listen with a keen ear. Um, not an uncritical ear, but a keen ear. And, he, and he, he, he's using the word Christian here to mean obviously wrong-headed. But let's just roll with it for a moment. What, he, what he's suggesting is that in order to read the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross into the Akeda story, we're tempted to read the Akeda story as a story in which Abraham really was willing to kill Isaac, and Isaac really was willing to die. Just like the father and the son in this Christian story, the father really is willing to sacrifice his son, and the son really is willing to die. Okay? But says Yoram Khazani, this is, this is both a misreading and um, an impediment to understanding Abraham's election. It's a misreading because it's not true. It's impediment to understanding Abraham's election because it, it, it obscures from view the fact that Abraham was ultimately always concerned with innocent life. So let's see what he says. Carry, let's carry on. I'm sorry it's a long quote, but... Um, okay. Interesting. Yeah. And of course, such an understanding of this text makes it the cornerstone of any interpretation of biblical ethics as boiling down to an unconditional obedience to God's commands. Right. Yes. But none of these interpretations of Abraham on Mount Moriah can or should be accepted. Common though such conclusions may be, one reaches them by reading the story out of the context of the larger narrative in which the biblical author has placed it, and by ignoring those verses that indicate that Abraham never was, quote, willing to sacrifice Okay, Isaac. what we're now going to see is a rereading of the story that you all know, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, the binding of Isaac. According to Yom Khazani, Abraham was at no point willing to sacrifice Isaac. Okay? And that's important to Khazani because he needs to show that Abraham is always ultimately concerned with innocent life. Okay, so let's see how he does it. The most pressing lesson that the reader is to take away from this story is that while the other nations may expect a contempt for innocent human life from their God, 
A contemptuous epitome is the Canaanite custom of child sacrifice. Abraham's God is one who values innocent human life and loves the piety of giving honor and thanksgiving to the gods. Given the choice between the sacrifice of Abraham's most prized possession, his only son, and the sacrifice of a ram that Abraham did not even own, the God of Israel prefers the ram. Indeed, it is the sacrifice of a ram that is the symbol of the God of Abraham, who is a God of shepherds. And pleases this God to accept such a sacrifice, quote, in place of his son, which is to say, in place of human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. In other words, what this story about is precisely the opposite of the virtue of blind obedience, come what may. It is told in a context of child sacrifice and emphasizes that the universe is ruled by a God who has no interest in seeing human beings make the ultimate sacrifice for his sake, because innocent human life is more precious to him than such honor as can be bestowed by a misguided man. So the first thing Arthur Zoni wants us to pay attention to, and this I think is uncontroversial, is that somewhere at the root of the story of the Arcade is the repudiation of human sacrifice. God doesn't want the human sacrifice. And God is willing to take animals instead of humans. And in a context in which child sacrifice was commonplace, right? We now know, like in Canaanite culture, uh, the sacrifice of the firstborn son at, the time, at what is now Easter time, the time of Pesach, right, was was commonplace, a horrific practice. When you know that that's the cultural context in which the Bible is revealed, right, it's really easy to read the Arcada as a repudiation of that practice. And what that illustrates to us is God is concerned with innocent life. Right? God is concerned with innocent human life. But what about Abraham? That's the next question. Carry on. So, what about Abraham? Does Abraham in fact stumble, intending to murder his son because of a command he believes he has from God during the course of the three days God has appointed as the period of his trial? What, what Yohan Khazani is unwilling to countenance is the idea that at any point along the way, Abraham um, was out of, of um, kilter with God on this issue. Just like God would never ever want innocent life slaughtered in his name, Abraham would never ever want to slaughter innocent life for God. Okay, now that's going to be a difficult read, so how did he do it? Carry on. Twice we are told that the two of them walked together, suggesting a personal closeness, but also a singleness of purpose. Abraham's devotion to his son is likewise emphasized by the dramatic use of the word hineni, I am here, and responding to Isaac, signaling that Abraham's loyalty to his son during the journey has not flagged, and is in fact akin to his loyalty to God. Just like Abraham's refrain, whenever God calls on Abraham, Abraham's answer is hineni. I'm here. And, and this is a nice reading, right? It's a nice reading of the verses. Abraham says to Isaac, Hineni, which means that he, he's, he, he seems to have an equal allegiance to Isaac as he does to Abraham, right? Uh, which, is not, which is nice. That's a sensitive reading. Yeah. Carrying on. Finally, Abraham says twice, quite explicitly, that there will be no sacrifice of Isaac. First, he tells the youths that the lad and I will go there prostrate ourselves and return to you. The Hebrew verb for return, nashu, being conjugated unmistakably in the plural. There are four people who go up Mount Moriah 
and a donkey. Abraham and Isaac go to the top, leaving two, two of the lads, whoever they are, behind with the donkey. And Abraham says, we're going to return to you after we've worshipped to God. Abraham's not a liar, says Abraham Khazani. Says you aren't so he must have known. He must have known all along that Isaac wasn't going to die. Did he know that because he thought God would bail him out, or because he wasn't going to do it? He doesn't know. He doesn't know. Okay. And then again, when Isaac asks Abraham what they will do for his sheep, since they have not brought one, Abraham tells the boy precisely what is going to happen. God will feed to the sheep for offering himself. That's what he says. Look, Abraham and Isaac are going up. Abraham tells Isaac exactly what's going to happen. Isaac says, where are we going to get the sheep from? And Abraham says, don't worry, God will sort out a sheep. And what happens? God sorts out a sheep. There's a sheep up there. There's always a sheep up there. Have you ever been mountain climbing? And you, like, try so hard to get to the top. And you're like, oh, this is exhausting. And there's just a goat up there. And you're like, how did you do that? This didn't, you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. When they get to Mars, they'll find two things. A mountain goat and a Chabad house. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So, I mean, okay. here are the two major pieces of evidence. One, the Hineni thing is nice. But the two major pieces of evidence is, Abraham says, we're going to return to you. We in the plural. Number two piece of evidence, God's going to find out a sheep for us. So Abraham knows all along that God couldn't have meant it. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Okay. How, how, how would the Christian respond to this, to these points? What does Abraham, why does Abraham say, say, we will return to you? He, he, Abraham, thinks he God. Maybe, maybe things yeah. anyway. That's good, we'll come back to that. What else? Yeah. Maybe it's in itself, there's like that interpretation that uh, who they're departing from, which is yeah. what Eliezer and Ishmael, yeah. would, be, would be sophisticated enough, or would be too ignorant or too boorish, that if they didn't say we're going to return to you, we yeah. guess they, wouldn't, they wouldn't respect that yeah. Abraham was going to go and sacrifice. I mean, yeah. I just. I can imagine that Eliezer being a servant to Ishmael, knowing his, you know, Abraham's general philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you're pointing to is that at Sadiq, a righteous person doesn't always have to tell the truth. It depends, you know, lying in, in the Jewish tradition depends on, on why and where. And it might just be that he wasn't telling the truth, or he was being liberal with the truth, or he was stretching the truth because of his audience, or because of the situation, or because of. Okay. And, and also, yeah. But on the other hand, about Ishmael, I mean, previously on this program, yeah. uh, we saw Abraham was willing to send Aaron and Ishmael out with a uh, very little supply, very few supplies. Yeah. And it's almost like God saying, hey, you know, one of son, the one that you love. Yeah. I, said, I want you to see how that fell. I want yeah. you to see how Abraham fell. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I got that from my voice. But he says, um, also, when he says, you know, God will seek out the sheep, that might be a euphemistic way of him trying try to say, Isaac, we, we don't have one, right? And something's going to happen up this mountain, you better get yourself ready, I don't know. It's not obvious to me that, that but it's a nice reading of the text. The thing I'm going to take as exception to is the idea that this was the rabbinic consensus. It's not the rabbinic consensus, right? Um... Just to look at just the end of the, the quote, Abraham at every point keeps firmly in view what is to him a fact, 
that whatever God may have said to him, he will not require him to murder his son. God himself will provide a ram for the sacrifice. The two of them, Abraham and Isaac, will return to the youth and the ass together. Readings that see Abraham as lying to the youth and then to Isaac in order to cover up the fact that he was planning to murder his son miss the entire point of this passage, which is that the two of them continue to walk together with one heart. For Abraham remains fully loyal to his son, believing as he does in a just God who does not require the spilling of innocent blood. It's a nice reading. It's just not a rabbinic reading. That's what we'll see. Well, look at the first text, straight after. Bereshit Rabbah, the angel. The angel comes to Abraham and he says, Don't stretch your hand out against your son. Don't leave any blemish on him at all. That's what the angel says. This, the Midrash seems to be interested in why the two exhortations, don't touch him, don't blemish him. Well, I mean, I'm not going to blemish him if I can't touch him. So Midrash Rabbah imagines a very disturbing con- conversation. Amalor, the angel says, Al tishlach yadachal Don't lay your hand upon the lad. Amalei, Abraham responded, let me just let me just take a little bit of blood. That's why the angel has to say no. Don't even blemish him at all. Don't leave a scar. Don't leave a bruise. This is a disturbing midrash. This is not an Abraham who's not willing to kill his son. This is an Abraham who's disappointed when he's told that he's not allowed to kill his son. Now this doesn't fill me with uh, uh, a lot of respect for Abraham. This isn't a nice source. This isn't a pleasant source. But I'm laying it out for you. We shouldn't. We we need to be careful uh, at all times. And this is a sin that we're all guilty of from time to time of trying to cast the rabbinic tradition in our own image, in our own likeness. Yoram Chazani has a very laudable uh, um, aim. He wants to make Abraham look like he's concerned for innocent life, and he can read the text the way he reads it. But in this footnote where he says the entire rabbinic tradition is with him, that's just not true. Yeah? Uh, no, I think uh, it really speaks to the human condition, though, that you have Abraham, supposedly the context is he's getting all, he's all riled that's up. That's right. Hitler, but right. he's meaning, you know, people who get all riled up and they're expecting an outcome, they're adrenaline. Right. He's expecting to. He was ready to do this thing. It took him three days to build up to it. But that's not to say he has a bloodlust. That's just to no. say he has, admit, he has activated a comment. That's know, right. Got himself in the mindset that he's about to commit. That's so, true. That is true. But whatever you say, this is disturbing. Right. You're, you're right. You're right that we can start to understand it and give a psychological interpretation of life. To think of Abraham, I mean... Maybe more disturbing about Abraham, more disturbing about the fact that all... That God puts him in that situation. Humans have and humans have the capacity to It's also this... I mean, obviously I'm reading... I have no idea what it's very Yeah. But how can I possibly... Yeah. But it seems like there's just a little too much zealousness to do the right thing for God. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm going to do what God wants. Yeah. And you're totally ignoring... Anything else that's also that's important. Right. That's right. And it, it's like I mean, I've I've seen lesser level examples of this thing that's so wound up and doing whatever it is the right way. They yeah. Completely ignore yeah. whatever implications. We get OCD about about halakha yeah, yeah. to the point where we don't care about like actual ethics and and yeah. and you know. Well, look here. 
The next, the next source, also from Genesis Rabba, very Rabba, the same, uh, the same collection. Abraham The verse says Abraham built an altar up there. Well, what was Isaac doing? Abraham and Isaac went up the mountain. It seems like only Abraham built the altar. Vayitzchak, <coughs> Where was Yitzchak? Says the Midrash. And Rabbi Levi, Rabbi Levi answers, Natlo Abraham took him and hid him while he built the altar. Amad Eben Says Abraham, lest the, the Satan, lest the devil, comes and throws a stone on him and invalidates him from being a sacrifice. A sacrifice can't have a blemish. Read less uh, mystically, forget the, forget the Satan. The idea is, if Abraham and Isaac are building the altar together, a stone might fall down and hurt Isaac, and then Isaac will no longer be an unblemished Sacrifice. Well, that might be a good thing. Then he doesn't have to sacrifice him, but Abraham wants to sacrifice him. That's what this midrash implies. Okay, read the Bible however you want. You can't read the rabbis to say that Abraham wasn't willing to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham was going to do it, and he wanted to do it. Carry on. <coughs> Abraham el Your own cousin is right. Abraham predicts that two of them will return. But the text only reports one of them returning. Abraham returned to the lads. Why? What happened? Where was Yitzchak? Yitzchak. Even though Yitzchak didn't die. Scripture here is treating him as if he died. Scripture is writing this part of the story as if Yitzchak was really sacrificed. This is what would have been written had Yitzchak been sacrificed. What would have been written? And Abraham returned to his lands. So Scripture writes as if it had happened even though it hadn't happened. Why? Uh, and it's written also and it's written as if Isaac's ashes were laid out on the altar up there therefore it says therefore the scripture says that Abraham returned to his youths I think the idea here Rabbi Yezab ben Padat is that Yitzchak was a willing accomplice this isn't it Yitzchak wasn't a child Right? According to the according to the rabbinic understanding, Yitzchak was about 30, 30 something years old, thirty three years old when this happened, and Abraham was ancient. If if a thirty three year old doesn't want to be tied down on an altar by by somebody over a hundred years old, he's not going to be. It's quite plausible as a pshat reading, as a straightforward reading of the text. That if Isaac was bound to the altar, as he seems to have been, he was a willing accomplice. Isaac wanted to be sacrificed to God. Or was at least willing to be. And in virtue of his willing, God considers him as if he was a real sacrifice. And that's why the scripture writes as it does. 
In yes, that's right. Not in virtue of what Abraham did. In virtue of Isaac's willingness. This takes us to a beautiful midrash in Vayikra Rabbah, which is quoted by Rashi on the parasha. So it's difficult for your Amhazani to have ignored this. This is in the curses in Vayikra. At the end of the curses, it says that um, it says that Aniyah's called Briti Abraham Viet Yitzchak Yaakov's cause, and that it says, I will remember my covenant with Abraham and Isaac, and I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and, and I'll remember the land. And in virtue of these remembrances, the curses will cease. But there's a strange thing. The word remember appears next to Abraham and next to Jacob and next to the land, but it doesn't appear next to the word Isaac. So it's something like, I will remember Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob I will remember, and I will remember the land. So the word remember comes up three times in the verse, but there are four things being remembered. The word Isaac doesn't have the word remember connected to it. Why not? Why is memory invoked next to Jacob and Abraham? But it's not said regarding Yitzchak. Rabbi Berechia for Rabbanan. This is an argument between Rabbi Berechia and Rabbanan. Rabbi Berechia Amar Ayudei Shahaya Ben Shal Yisurin. Rabbi Berechia says that Isaac had such a difficult life that God is somehow constantly remembering Isaac. Somehow he deserves to be more constantly before God's mind because of all the suffering he had. And, uh, the Rabbanan Amre, but the rabbis say, the ashes of Isaac, the ashes of Isaac are as if piled on the altar before Hashem. Hashem doesn't need to remember Isaac. Isaac's always in front of him. His ashes. And the word ki'ilu here is important. Isaac wasn't really sacrificed. It's like the last source. But Isaac was willing to be sacrificed. And that willingness is considered before God as if it was a real sacrifice. Isaac was willing to give his life to God. And I'll come to you in a second. How Christian does this sound? Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what. This is why the curses end. So why are the Jewish people going to be saved? Because of the sacrifice of Isaac. Somebody's only son. And that sacrifice saves us from sin. Yeah. What, what's the question? Uh, just the, uh, the contrast between Abraham uh, having almost like ego slip in and say, but I, it's like it came about him at that point when he said, I just want to, I just want to, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, just want to cut the whole right. Let me, let me do it because he, he needs to gratify himself. His ego has slipped in. Whereas Isaac, it seems like he had totally lost himself upon the altar. He just like, in his own mind, he, you know, he transcended, he had already, yeah. already transcended all the spirit. That's right. That's also like, that was the concept, I think, what is it called? Tzadik, Nehmet, Tzadik, Nehmet, Tzadik, Nehmet, Tz
dissolved in his own mind. Yes. There was no more Abraham. He was betting that. And it's kind of it's funny, you see the, almost like the progress between Abraham and Isaac that yes. Abraham took something which was supposed to be total sacrifice. Yes. And he. And what he about started, me? Started, I want to draw blood. He started to think about his own impulse, whereas yes. Isaac uh, it became an experience for Isaac. Isaac totally disappeared. Although this also makes the Abraham source slightly less disturbing. Because if Isaac is a completely willing accomplice and they've decided together as a pair that they're going to do this, mm. then, God, then everyone's like, oh, can I do something? If this, is, this is a big gesture we were going to do together. You know? well, first of all, I yeah. get that, but the thing yeah. is, just because somebody says, I want to end my own life, I'm yeah. perfectly fine. That's you, true. But you're not allowed to do that. That's true. And the other thing is, about this Christian thing, this would seem to be the place that it brings it. Every time I stumble upon a Channel 13 documentary about the ancient Incas or Mayas or whoever it was that was doing child sacrifice, I saw a lot more recently than the ancient Canaanites, I want, I have this impulse to say, go missionaries, Christian missionaries, yeah. go tell these people they don't have to do that That's anymore. Right. Somebody That's else already did it for you. That's right, much better. I'm sorry, man. Much, much better, much better. But it's like, it's just, it's that's a very, such a strong, powerful theme. Okay. Okay. So, just to, to make things even, uh, even more Christian. <laughs> okay. The Shibole Alekek is a medieval source on the, on the Siddur and other things. But it's generally thought to be um, um, a compendium of much older Midrashic material that was lost to us. And this is what it says. Kevan Shaboa and Sheikhnesset Gadola Kolam Batiknum Kisidran Kishinitsal Abraham Meokastim Pakumalakhashare Pamru Bohata Shem Magen Abraham. When the when the men of the Great Assembly came together and established orders of, of, of prayers, they did it according to things that happened to the forefathers. So when Abraham was saved from the furnace of Urkastim, the angels opened their mouth. And they said, Blessed are you, O Lord, shield of Abraham, which becomes the first bracha of the Amida. When Isaac, our father, was, was tied to this Mizbeach, the said, Deshem. He was made into ashes. And his um, ashes were spread over Mount Moriah. God brought down a special dew from heaven. The Hichyeh Otto, it resurrected him. Amar David uh, therefore, David says in the psalm, it is as though the dew of the Hermon is falling upon the Mount of Zion. This is a reference to the, the, the towel that fell on Isaac. Um, like the towel that revived Isaac, the dew that revived Isaac. The angels opened their mouth and said, Blessed are you, blessed are you O God, who revives the dead. All of the brachot of the Amida, according to this midrash, come from angels who, at certain uh, points in the life of the, father, the forefathers, ha- had occasion to say them. When Abraham was saved from Ur-Kasim, the angels had occasion to say Magen Abraham. When Yitzchak was resurrected, 
the angels had occasion to say, So there was an only son who was sacrificed. And his ashes are before God. And when the Jewish people are saved at the end of days from the punishments of their sin, it's in virtue of the sacrifice of this only son who died and was resurrected. Okay? This is just the Midrashim. Right? Your own cousin is entitled not to like Christianity, but you can't write this out of the Jewish tradition. Right. Um, okay. Do I really believe Isaac was sacrificed? No, we've said this is a metaphor. Right? It's a metaphor about his willingness to be sacrificed. And maybe his resurrection is also a metaphor. How did Isaac come down from that mountain after the trauma of seeing his father with a knife above him? That's the resurrection of the dead, if ever there was one. Right? As a metaphor. I'm not saying this really happened. Okay. Um, there's more stuff here. But let me, let me uh, try and pull this together in a little uh, way. Hold on a second. Look at page six on the, uh, the Babylonian Talmud uh, from Tanit 16a um, talks about okay, no, that's not so important it talks about why, uh, why people wear ashes on a fast day well it is quite important because we're going to talk about fasting later why is it that people have a custom to have ashes on their head during a fast day? well it was a custom it was a custom and uh, some people wear ashes on their head. I did this on their wedding day, which is also oh, yeah. a, which is also a fast day, right? Right. Uh, why do they wear ashes on their head? This is a difference of opinion. Pardon? Some brides do, but mainly mainly grooms, because not every bride has. It's more common for grooms to fast than for brides to fast. I mean, really? Yes, it is more common. No, it's more common. Um, So one, one reason is because we're saying to Hashem before you we are like ashes. But the other is to remind God of the ashes of Isaac. Because remember, the ashes of Isaac um, um, save us. How do they save us? Well, Isaac was willing to give everything to God. And that's a tremendous merit. And we have this notion of schut abot the merit of our forefathers. We may not be deserving, but Isaac was deserving, so at least remember how deserving Isaac was, and maybe you'll be nice to us, God, because we're his children. Schut Abbot. Right? Now look here. Um, yeah, this is the one I wanted to... The top of page 7, uh, from the second Sabachim. I think this is a very, very important text, because it's going to tie Akedat Yitzchak to sacrifice in general. Okay. Um... The question is, when the people returned from Babel to build the second temple, how did they know exactly where to build it? Right? Sure, they knew where the walls of the house were, because they could see its ruins, basically. Its outline was still distinguishable. How did they know exactly where to put the Mizbeach? To this day, we don't know exactly where the Mizbeach was on Harabayat. 
there's a healthy debate about that, which is one of the reasons why some people, some, some observant Jews won't go up there at all. Because we're not exactly sure of the geography of the, of the Temple Mount and which parts were the holiest parts. So some people don't go up there at all. How did the people returning from Babel know exactly where to put the Mizbeach? Amar Rabbi Elazar, Mizbeach Benoi, Michal Hasar Gadal Makrivalat. They saw a vision of an already built Mizbeach with an angel sacrificing on it. So you had a prophetic vision. That's one answer. Rabbi Yitzchak Nafcha Amar, but Rabbi Yitzchak Nafcha said, No, no, no. Afro Shel Yitzchak Rubu. The ashes of Isaac were still there. They knew exactly where to build in this bear. The Ramban, the next source. This is the Ramban on the Akeda. And he's talking about the significance of the Akeda happening where it happened, on Ha'amoriya, which becomes Ha'abayim. God commanded Abraham to bring Yitzchak up to that place. Because that was the mountain that God desired to dwell upon. God wanted the merit of the Akedah to be mixed up with every korban that would ever be brought afterwards. Kashem Abraham, Hashem your heir. So, this source in Zavachim that says they saw the ashes of Isaac under the Mizbeach, it's because every time you bring a sacrifice, the ashes of the sacrifice get mixed up, so to speak, metaphorically, with the ashes of Isaac that are still there. So now it's time by... Now it's actually told me before. Now it's time to go back right to the beginning, to the set to the third source, the Ramban. I promise you would come back to why does the Ramban say we bring sacrifices? He dismissed Maimonides. So why do we bring sacrifices? It is more fitting, this is the last paragraph of the Ramban, I'm just going to read it in English. Page three. It's more fitting to hear the real reason that he said of them. That since the deeds of man are completed in thought, word, and action, God commanded that when they sin, they should bring a sacrifice, place their hands upon it in place of the action. Right? We've got three things whenever you perform a deed there's action, thought, intention. The speech. When you lay your hands upon the animal, you're performing a ritualized action. Right? The action is called smicha. And that is in place of the sinful action that you did. You also have to do a vidui, a verbal confession. That's in place of your sinful speech. Vidui. Right? 